Well, good morning and Happy New Year. Uh, I always love the energy that comes with a new year, leaving the old behind, uh, new aspirations, new goals, uh, motivation. I don't know if you're the type of person that lists out goals every year or if you really dread uh, the new year. Uh, if you are the type of person that likes to make goals, I would love to hear what they are after the service. That would be great. But I can't think of a better way to start out the year for us as a church than to study the very words of our Savior, Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Oftentimes when I tell people I'm a pastor, um, I've, I've gotten mixed responses, and I can't help but wonder what is going on in their head, what it means to them. And I've noticed actually that as I've lived in different places, uh, I've gotten kind of different reactions. Uh, so whether I was a pastor or, or in, in training in school, uh, so for example in the coastal areas like here or on the east coast, uh, when I would mention that I was studying to be a pastor or now that I am a pastor, uh, I would notice that the conversation would kind of come to a halt, uh, that the other person would be silent that they would be hesitant to ask more questions. And I, I just wonder if in their minds they automatically come up with some kind of Christian caricature of a preacher. Like, for example, uh, a preacher that only preaches hell and brimstone, fire and brimstone, casting judgment on others. In the South, when I lived in Kentucky, the response was a little different. Uh, it was more positive. I would say that generally... Uh, being a, a pastor or studying to become a pastor was seen as a good thing, still contributing well to society. Uh, it was good to have good morals. And the positive reception actually made me wonder if they had ever been exposed to teaching about uh, things like judgment and hell. Uh, or if the subject has just been tiptoed around in their churches uh, or just avoided altogether for the sake of cultural pleasantness. Well, friends, I don't think we should make either mistake of only preaching fire and brimstone or uh, never mentioning it at all. Unfortunately, those are our two tendencies, I would say. But because we preach uh, in a style that is expositional, that is, we just work gradually through a book, seeking to understand the meaning and expose the meaning and apply it to our lives, uh, we can't just simply skip over the difficult topics or, or the ones that we don't like as much. Well, today is one of those texts that may be difficult to swallow, but one that we should never shy away from or try to minimize because it is something that Jesus spoke about very clearly. So turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, starting in verse 42. That's Mark 9, verse 42, which you can find on page 845 of the Bibles provided underneath the seats. Our text this morning continues from the previous sections uh, that include a number of teachings of Jesus to his disciples. A few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, he gave them instructions for how believers are to treat other believers, how they are to receive others in the name of Christ, and how they are to give kindness and charity towards others and how that kindness and charity will be rewarded in heaven. Now, that's not to say that doing good things, like giving someone a glass of water, which is mentioned, uh, gains salvation in any way. It's not saying you're saved by doing good deeds. 
But he's saying that for those who are trusting in Christ, for believers seeking to obey Jesus, obedience sometimes looks like treating others in love and receiving them in the name of Christ. Uh, This, of course, complemented his teaching that in order to become the greatest in heaven, we must become the least on earth. To become great, we must become servants. Well, all those teachings were talked about in the positive, the reward in heaven for doing these things. But in our passage this morning, Jesus instructs his disciples in the form of a warning. He speaks of the danger of taking sin lightly and the costly consequences of letting it get the better of you. With all those things in mind, let's read our text this morning. Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. And this is Jesus speaking while holding a child in his arms. He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. The main idea of the passage is this. Saying no to sin can be extremely difficult and countercultural at times. But it is worth the sacrifice to save your soul from hell. I'll say that again. Saying no to sin can be extremely difficult and countercultural at times. But it is worth the sacrifice to save your soul from hell. Uh, typically, I just break up the text as it flows, taking kind of one idea at a time. Uh, but today, I'm just going to have three points that I think are the, the three biggest takeaways from the passage. So the three takeaways are that, one, hell is real, two, sin is costly, and three, live carefully. And my prayer is simply that each of us would take hell and sin as seriously as Jesus did, and that the result would be a renewed saltiness in our personal walk with Christ and in our relationships with one another. So first takeaway, hell is real. Hell is real. If we didn't live in the current age that we do, uh, or the current uh, place that we do, I might think that this point was unnecessary to mention. Uh, But I think because of the times that we live in, and especially because of the wide diversity of opinions on the subject, I feel a responsibility to teach you what I think the Bible teaches clearly, that according to Jesus, hell is a real place. Oftentimes people associate judgment and punishment with the Old Testament, as if that's that's all the Old Testament is about, and then love and mercy and heaven with Jesus in the New Testament. And some who even profess faith don't like the idea of hell, and they find it 
like a repellent to those outside the faith. And so they either just ignore it completely, uh, like we talked about, or they simply just reject the idea and redefine what belief in Jesus means. But it's incredibly important that we listen to all the teachings of Jesus, not just the things that sound good to us. It might surprise you to know that no one in the entire Bible talked more about hell than Jesus did. Jesus mentions it more than anyone else. Uh, The word that we translate as hell in this passage is used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those times, it's spoken by Jesus. The same man who dined with sinners and tax collectors, the same man who touched and healed a leper, uh, who healed a bleeding woman when she touched him, the same man who said that we should be servants to all, that same man talked about hell more than anyone else. So it's ironic that people assume that Jesus has nothing to do with the idea. In fact, he's the primary source of information on it. We must be extremely attentive to the words of Jesus when it comes to such matters because eternal souls hang in the balance. So from this passage, I want you to see that hell is not just an idea and not just a place that one's spirit goes, but that hell is a real physical place. Uh, Now, there's a lot of different descriptions of hell in the Bible, uh, and they typically communicate ideas through metaphors, uh, more more than, I would say, literal descriptions. So what kind of physical place, we can't can't be certain. Jesus, for example, calls it a, a place of outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing and teeth, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, how there can be darkness and yet fire at the same time, I don't know. Uh, But more likely, these are just uh, pictures that we know and experience to give us an idea of what hell is like. But they're not exactly a virtual or a 3D tour. Still, we can understand more about hell through these descriptions. So in this passage, Jesus gives four different word pictures that would be better Than hell. And while they are metaphorical, they are meant to communicate a reality. So I want you to see that Jesus says that that, that it's a physical reality as well in the way that he uses a terrible physical reality here on earth. So, for example, losing a limb or being drowned in the sea. He says that suffering in hell would be worse than that. It's not a place in which our souls are punished without our bodies, but is in fact a place where our bodies are resurrected and prepared for eternity. If we were to experience the punishment of hell, like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we would want to do anything to escape it and to warn others of it. And here Jesus is warning his disciples that hell is worse than even taking these drastic measures. You'll notice in verses 42 through 47, Jesus repeats all four times something like, it would be better, and it is better that these things would happen to you. And if these physical handicaps and even a terrible death is better than the punishment given in hell, then why in the world would we think it's anything other than physical punishment? Hell is not just a physical place, but it is an eternal place. That is to say, unending, inescapable, 
And we learn that from the history of the word itself. The, the word that's translated as hell here in this passage is, is the word Gehenna. You'll see that in the footnotes of the ESV. And as it turns out, Gehenna was a real place in Israel's history. And it means Valley of Hinnom, uh, which was just a ravine near Jerusalem. And it happened to be a ravine in which the Canaanites sacrificed their children to their Canaanite gods. It was the same ravine that then wicked kings in Israel's history uh, likewise followed suit and did the same thing until a king named Josiah came along and he uh, transformed it into a, uh, a large trash heap, uh, a garbage landfill, basically, where refuse and garbage was constantly being loaded and burned all day and night next to the city. So this history and vivid imagery made Gehenna a useful image for the Jews to use when communicating and thinking about the judgment of God. And over the years, the reference to Gehenna took on the the meaning of end-time judgment, which is why we just translate it now as hell, because that's what it's referring to. It's described as an unquenchable flame, because it never ends. It never goes out. And yet somehow it's also the place where a worm does not die. In verse 48, it mentions that a worm won't die, and you'll notice maybe there's quotations there. Now that's because it's a quote of the very last verse in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 24. And Isaiah there, of course, is mentioning end times as well and God's final judgment. And so Jesus is linking his descriptions and teachings about hell with Isaiah's prophecy of it. Beyond that, it's just interesting that in this kind of environment, something as weak or as small as a worm is somehow not able to die. Uh, They're not hard to kill. And it could just be that it's a symbol of death uh, because worms and maggots eat a corpse in the ground, for example. But I think it speaks more clearly to the fact that cosmic punishment is ongoing and not instantaneous. It is constant and unrelenting, and yet the worm does not die. So just as uh, Christians will receive resurrected bodies that are fit for eternity in heaven, uh, others will receive resurrected bodies that are fit for eternity in hell. Uh, The other thing I want to draw your attention to is just the fact that Jesus here juxtaposes hell with heaven or eternal life. Uh, And that's often how he talks about it. So he refers to two places that one can go beyond the grave. If salvation is eternal life and condemnation is eternal death, and those are the only two options available. Everyone here on earth dies. And when we do, we will be judged and sent to one of those two places. And of course, no one has any problem with the idea of heaven being a real place. But it doesn't make sense for us to assume that heaven is real and hell is not. And Jesus here presents them together as alternate destinations and there's no sign at all that one of them is any less real than the other. I recognize that this is not the most comfortable subject. But friends, we must never shy away from it if it is as important as Jesus implies. And I'll just be totally honest in my own life the idea of eternal punishment is one of the most difficult things, I think, about Christianity. John Stott once said that emotionally, he felt that the concept was intolerable. 
And in some ways, I think that's an appropriate response. But what greater reason can we find to share the good news of Jesus' forgiveness and salvation with others if not to save their souls from punishment? There could not be a better reason to evangelize others. There's no fuel more combustible when it comes to reaching the lost and protecting our own souls from the danger of sin than a robust doctrine of hell. So friends, I I know that this is a difficult subject, a complicated one. Many books, libraries have been filled on the subject. We're just looking at this particular teaching of Jesus this morning. But if if anyone is to understand Christ's love for us, it's necessary that they understand their need of grace. And they'll only understand that and the severity of their sin against a holy God if they understand the punishment that we deserve for our crimes. And how much more beautiful, though, is Jesus to us when we see more clearly what He has rescued us from. I think one of the biggest hurdles for people about what the Bible teaches about hell is just a misunderstanding of the holiness of God. Uh, When we make little of God's holiness, then the punishment seems to outweigh the crime. Uh, People don't think sins here on earth deserve eternal punishment. And so they refuse to believe the whole thing. They just think it's not fair. Just bear with me while I respond to those objections briefly. We do not believe in a small God. The Bible does not teach that God is anything but a supreme being for which all things were made to worship. Not only that, but it says He is perfectly just. His very goodness depends on His perfect discernment and character that will give the appropriate punishment for evil deeds. He will give no more and no less. Therefore, to question His judgment is to question His goodness and His integrity. So instead of looking at the punishment and questioning God's goodness, we should rather look at the punishment and ask ourselves, what does that teach us about our sin and His holiness? Is it at all possible that we take our sins too lightly sometimes? Is it at all possible that we, at times, don't take God's authority seriously enough? One of my favorite authors summarized it well by saying, wrath reveals worth. Wrath reveals worth. Meaning, if you were to strike a sibling, for example, that would be wrong. Uh, There there may be some punishment, but it would most likely be mild. However, if you struck a parent, the punishment would be greater. If you struck a police officer, then the crime would require a fine and probably jail time, and perhaps you'd be given a misdemeanor on your permanent record. But imagine the person that you assaulted was the president or another high-ranking official of many lands. That punishment is going to be far more severe because of the worth of the person that the crime was committed against. So friends, what does it say about God's ultimate and eternal worth if our sins deserve eternal punishment in hell? They say about God what the Bible says about God. 
which is that He is the one and only living God who created all things and who will judge all things. And so even the smallest of sins cannot be taken lightly when they're committed against the God of the universe. It would be far better to say the sins we think are small are far worse than we could have ever imagined. Brothers and sisters, we do not want a God that does not deal with sin and wickedness. In our broken and sinful state, we may have trouble understanding or seeing God's judgment accurately. We read in Romans 11, who has the mind of God? It's not for us to discern. But I would argue that the alternative is no better. The idea of sin not being punished appropriately is not a comforting idea at all. Because if God doesn't punish sin justly, how can we be sure He acquits it? Hell is real. Second takeaway, sin is costly. Sin is costly. Uh, That's the main thrust of the passage, I think. Uh, First communicated by Jesus in verse 42, with his warning about leading others into sin. He's speaking with a child, using a child as an example that he's holding in his arms. Uh, But remember back in 37, he picks up the child and he uses the child as an illustration for how we are to treat other believers in Christ. So the first lesson was to beware of leading others into sin. And Jesus gives a really graphic image of what would be a better thing to do. He actually says that death is better than leading a Christian into sin. And he uses these images for reasons. Uh, you know, he could have just said it'd be better for you to die. But instead, he describes what sounds almost like the, a death performed by the mafia or something. So a millstone back in Jesus' day was how they made flour. By crushing grain, there were large stones that rolled on top of each other. Uh, so large, in fact, that um, a, a human couldn't roll it. They had to strap a donkey to it. Uh, there is one person in the Bible who actually rolls it, and it's Samson for the Philistines. Uh, but a normal person can, can't even move these. It's too heavy for an ordinary person to lift. And so Jesus says that it's better to have one of these incredibly heavy stones tied around your neck to send you plummeting to the depths of the sea, which was a symbol for chaos chaos and darkness to the Jews. That would be better than causing a believer to sin. It's it's shocking, isn't it? There's uh, a few different versions of a game called Would You Rather? Uh, You know... This is like the game that middle schoolers play. Uh, But now someone has made it into board games. Uh, But the whole idea is, you know, you choose two really unpleasant, uncomfortable things, and you're forced to choose one of them over the other. So a mild example would be, if you had to eat one thing for the rest of your life, would you rather eat worms or crickets? Do you go for the soft and squishy or the crunchy and salty meal? You can tell me what your answer is to that afterwards as well, by the way. I'm curious. Sometimes the choices are obvious. One is, is obviously better than the other, but most of the time they're pretty close and neither one is ideal. But between these two options that Jesus gives, it doesn't even seem close. To us, causing someone to sin seems far more mild than being yanked to the ocean. Everyone sins anyway, so what's, what's the big deal here? What's going on? Jesus is using the the contrast, the difference in attempt 
to show how dreadful the punishment for sin is. It may seem like no big deal to us, and that's the problem. It is serious. It's better to have this kind of death than face what lies beyond the grave. Uh, Sin, by the way, translated here, could also just be translated causing someone to stumble or to miss the mark. Uh, And I just think in this context, particularly, Jesus is most likely talking about leading someone away from faith in Christ, leading, leading them into a life of sin. So if you're really nervous thinking, I made someone angry one time and... And because of my actions, I caused them to sin. You know, am I who Jesus is talking about? I, I don't think so. But we should be especially careful about the way that we act and behave in front of others so as to not give the devil any kind of foothold in their life. We need to be especially watchful that our lives don't cause another believer to harden their hearts towards God. We need to be sure that we're not being hypocrites because that's a sure way to cause someone to doubt the promises of God, and to be suspicious about the character of God, and ultimately to give themselves over to sin. Sin is a really big deal, and it's not worth it. We need to treat it like it's a really big deal, not just in front of others, but in our own lives as well. And the best way to make sure we don't cause others to stumble is to make sure we ourselves are not consumed by sin. That's why Jesus gives three more examples in verses 43 through 47. In a similar fashion, he says it's better to lose a hand or a foot or an eye than to keep them and be thrown into hell. And no, Jesus is not saying that Christians should do this. Uh, He's not saying that we should maim ourselves. He's deliberately using hyperbolic language to communicate the danger of sin and the severity of God's wrath against it. Uh, How do we know that Jesus is speaking metaphorically? First, uh, self-mutilation was a sin in Levitical law. It was frowned upon. Uh, Physical harm, for religious purpose especially, was something that was practiced by the Canaanites. But Israel was to be holy and set apart, bearing the image of the Creator. Uh, But even more importantly than that, Jesus has already taught them earlier in the gospel, back in chapter 7, verse 15, that sin doesn't come from the outside. It comes from what's inside of us. It doesn't come from our hands or our eyes or our feet. Those are just instruments that carry out our heart's desires. Jesus already said it's what's inside that defiles us. So if someone were to actually go through with this, hypothetically, it would probably only take them a day to realize that they still sin. And of course, we can't cut out our own hearts. That's one of the points. We need a new heart. Uh, That's what's promised. Uh, Jesus says he'll give us a a heart of flesh. The prophet spoke of our hearts of stone being turned to hearts of flesh. And Jesus puts his spirit inside of us to to dwell with us. Jesus is saying that sin is so dangerous and so costly that we need to take drastic measures to avoid it. Uh, we shouldn't treat it lightly. Uh, the Bible often uses body actions as, and postures as a way to communicate uh, a, a way of living, a walk of life. So think about Psalm 1. The blessed man does not walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but delights in the law of the Lord. 
So these metaphors are like different avenues that sin manifests or expresses itself in our lives. It would be like saying stealing with your hands, lusting with your eyes, or boasting pridefully in the way that you carry yourself. Jesus is saying, however it is you find yourself sinning, get rid of the opportunity to. We all have inlets and outlets in our lives. Perhaps it's hanging around a coworker who gossips, and so you find yourself uh, easily falling to gossiping and doing the same. Perhaps you work remotely, and you have no accountability as to uh, when and where you use your computer. But friends, Jesus is saying it's better to remove these opportunities from your life because of how deadly they can be in your life. Uh, We have a way of making ourselves feel better uh, about our sins or making ourselves feel like just sins don't matter. Maybe you think, if I just do this once, or it's harmless to drive this route home even though there's a risque billboard, I'm not an addict or anything. Or that guy deserved to be ridiculed. He's always so cruel to others. It's about time he got some of his own medicine. We also have a way of convincing ourselves that it just simply is too inconvenient to cut out sin from our lives or these avenues to sin in our lives. That it's just too awkward or just frankly not realistic. We think it'd be, uh, to use the earlier examples, maybe I would lose a voice among my peer group if I didn't engage in the gossip. Uh, We think if I, that, that I have to have a computer on me at all times and it's just too inconvenient to rely on public Wi-Fi to only work in public places. Or we think, I'm just a competitive person, I have to be aggressive, I have to put myself before others to make it in this kind of profession. Uh, brothers and sisters, it is far better for you to make less money than to give your life over to sin that will send you to hell. It's better to be ostracized at work than accepted there and not in heaven. Better maybe even to change jobs than to have no accountability. The whole point of cutting off body parts metaphorically is that they are, body parts are extremely precious to us and it goes against everything in our nature to do. So if you just think that your sin would be too inconvenient to avoid, just imagine how inconvenient a single day in your life would be without one of these body parts, a hand or a foot or an eye. Jesus is saying that the temporary pleasure that sin promises to you is not worth the ruin that it will bring in eternity. Or to put it another way, whatever inconvenience or even pain and suffering that comes from allegiance to Christ today will be worth it in eternity. Jesus has already said that if we want to be his disciples, we need to be prepared to pick up our cross and follow him. A lot of Christians out there say that they love God, that they would do anything for Jesus. I've met a lot of guys who say things like this, yet they're not willing to make simple changes in their life to grow out of their sin. They lack discipline of replacing bad habits with good ones for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others who depend on them. And if you think you're not in danger of sin taking over 
your life, then you might be the very person that needs to hear Jesus' warning the most. Because it only takes a spark to light a forest fire. It only takes one small leak to sink a ship. Lowering the temperature one degree at a time eventually causes water to harden and turn to ice. If you ignore even the small sins in your life, they will destroy your life, your marriage, your integrity, your relationships with others. And those are just some of the earthly consequences. Just imagine the cost in eternity. Friends, sin isn't worth it. One of my previous pastors used to say that big sins, the sins that we think of as big sins, they rarely happen overnight or come out of nowhere. More often, they leave a long trail of soft compromises behind them. And over time, after making soft compromise after soft compromise, their hearts harden towards repentance until their soul is lost. Sin is costly. I don't have time to come up with every possible scenario or sin that I can think of to give examples, but you know your own heart. And you know where your hands and your feet and your eyes go. So do a difficult but a genuine heart search. And talk to a godly brother or sister and ask them how, how you can cut these avenues of sin out of your life. Hear this warning and remember often what John Owen said in his great work, The Mortification of Sin. He said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There's nothing to be ashamed of in this room. We are all sinners in need of grace for those who trust in Christ, saved completely by the grace of God through the work of Christ on the cross. If it were not for his death and resurrection, we would be held captive and slaves to our sin. But praise be to God, he made a way for us to be freed from it and to be forgiven and even made righteous. And he's given us his spirit and each other to help along the way. Third takeaway, live carefully. Live carefully. Uh, This point comes from verses 49 and 50. As Jesus shifts the language slightly, uh, um, read those those verses with me again. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He began speaking about the judgment and punishment of sin, the importance of taking sin seriously, And now he says that everyone will be salted with fire and that salt is good. And uh, if that sounds kind of a little out of place, um, chances are that these are teachings of Jesus that are not necessarily unique to this instant. Uh, they, They may have been. Jesus said really similar things in the Sermon on the Mount. So either Jesus just returned to the subject, uh, you know, because of the similar language, as most teachers do when they think something is really important. They talk about it often. Or Mark is just using the similar language to include Jesus' teaching at this point in the gospel. But let's just take one verse at a time. Verse 49 says that everyone will be salted with fire, which sounds a lot like sacrificial language. 
And if you go back to Leviticus 2, specifically verse 13, you'll find that offerings were given by salt. Uh, Not only that, but salt has the characteristics of bringing out natural flavor in, in meat. And so what Jesus is speaking of in verse 49 is not so much the fire of punishment like he was early, but a purifying kind of fire. It's like the fire of sacrifices that present a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's the same kind of language used in Romans uh, 12.1 that we read earlier that says that we are to present our own bodies as a sacrifice to God, holy and blameless. It's a refining fire like Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1. He speaks of the trials in life for the Christian being like fire that refines gold, which shows itself to be genuine afterwards. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, first, I want to thank you for coming. I'm so glad that you're here. You're welcome anytime. I want you to know that the Bible teaches clearly that everyone will be judged at some point in time. For Christians, they will experience trials and sacrifice because of the decisions they make to follow Christ. But for those who don't profess Christ, life may be easier here on earth, but there will be a judgment later, and it's one that you can't escape from. But here in love, Jesus did not leave you to hell. He made a way. He laid down his own life and took our sin upon himself to pay the penalty that we deserved so that we wouldn't perish, but that we could have eternal life. It's because of Jesus' love that we love others and because we love you that we want you to hear this message unfiltered. But that forgiveness can be yours if you turn from your sin and trust in him. Consider doing that today. Trials will determine the worth of our faith, just like gold in a furnace. And the same could be said about salt. In verse 50, Jesus is saying that Christians have a a kind of saltiness to them. We are to be a substance that preserves and enhances the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, that we are to be the salt of the earth. And those uh, listening to Jesus at that time knew that if salt loses its saltiness, then it wouldn't have the same kind of preserving or flavoring tendencies. Christians are to be the salt of the earth by our character and our godliness and our witness to the world. And in this context, by our love for one another. Think about verse 42 again. Context is about how to treat other believers. And if we are faithful and have not lost our saltiness, we will continue to help others follow Christ rather than cause them to sin. This is part of living in the world and not of it. So it's a safe assumption that those who put themselves above others, who maybe lead them into sin or don't make any efforts to cut sin out of their own life, are not being salt of the earth. They are being just like the rest of the world without any distinction. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, that salt that's lost its saltiness is useless might as well be trampled underneath the feet. He's not saying that people aren't valuable. He's just saying that if they, that they're not acting 
like Christ in the way that they interact with others, then we don't, as Christians, have anything to offer the rest of the world if we act just like the world. To be a Christian, to pick up your cross, to be a servant, it means to live a holy life. It means to be actively killing sin, and, and we won't do it perfectly. And God has given us grace for that. But we will do it actively and sincerely, making conscious efforts to put ourselves out of the way of temptation and in the way of godly instruction. Jesus sums all this up by saying, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. We spent a lot of time speaking about really heavy, difficult things this morning. And I dare not take away from them. But look at the note that Jesus ends on. It's one of peace. Peace with each other. As we seek to live godly lives and to help each other in our walk with Christ, the result is salt in our lives and peace. There's one other thing I want to show you from this passage. And it's from verse 42 where we began. Jesus begins with this warning about causing one of these little ones to sin. And remember that Jesus certainly cares about children, but he's, in this instance he's referring to those who believe in him, other Christians. And he's giving his disciples a very strong warning about causing one of his followers to stumble. And it is this very thing that leads to the topic of eternal punishment and the danger of sin. It's one thing to make your own choices, but to take part in bringing someone else into condemnation is on a whole other level, isn't it? And that's why I think the image is the most severe out of all the metaphors he gives. But think about what this warning from Jesus teaches us about his love and his care for his followers who are like children to him. It's not because of how, is it not because of how deeply he cares for his children that he would issue such a severe warning? And this warning was not given to Pharisees or strangers. It's given to the disciples who would be the first missionaries and pastors and leaders of other followers of Christ. Beneath this stark warning is an ardent love for his children. Jesus mentioned hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And yet, there is no one who cared so deeply for those he taught. No one has seen a greater love than is seen in Jesus, who willingly chose death himself in order to save others from hell. When we think about the cost of sin, we should think not only of what it cost us, but what it cost Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to look at Jesus and ask ourselves if our sin is worth it. We have treated our sins against you lightly. We often fail to take sin and hell seriously. Help us to heed Jesus' warnings. Help us to remember the sacrifice he made for us so that we would have salt in our lives and be at peace with one another. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.